0: Yeah, so please keep your Bibles open at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, If you're a note taker, uh, you can use the outline. Uh, This is a tough topic this morning, uh, so I think we need the Lord's help. So why don't we pray again and uh, ask the Lord to help us as we wrestle through it. Father God in heaven, we are rarely confronted by our own mortality. Yet when we are, it is... Uh, at times worrying and concerning yet you have a wonderful hope for us may we listen to it this morning may we wait patiently for all you have ahead in Jesus name amen well waiting is a big part of our life isn't it we wait for packages to arrive we wait for test results to come back we wait for our favorite bands to tour We wait for amazing online deals. We wait for the perfect partner. We wait for the perfect job. We eagerly await Christmas, birthdays, holidays. And there are special rooms that you spend longer in as you get older that are called waiting rooms. As society has modernised, we have tried to remove waiting. The newspaper is now online. Test results... They arrive in SMS form. Face scanners at airports now remove the need for passports. And the post arrives by plane every second or third or fourth day. Yet waiting is still and always will be a big part of our lives. Waiting is a reality in an uncertain world with time and people. Are you a good waiter? One way to tell is how you feel when you see those three dots, when someone is replying to your message, and they're not replying to your message, and then replying to your message. You know what I mean. Now, some of us in this room are great waiters. You embrace the chaos of life, or you have a really clear plan with 17 um, contingencies. The rest of us are impatient waiters. And that's especially the case in our world where waiting is now, it, it's now wrong. It impinges on our right to be happy. And so as that old school band Queen used to sing, I want it all and I want it now. So we become impatient. Now how we wait is important for Christians because waiting is a big part of the Christian life. Now we have received so much already from God but there's still so much more God promises to do. If you're a Christian, you are saved but not home. So what we're waiting for and how we wait impacts the way we live. Yet waiting is never easy. And that's something the Thessalonians had discovered when Paul left. When Paul was with him, with them, He taught them about the Christian hope based on the words of Jesus. And so we read in chapter 1 verse 10, the Thessalonians were waiting for the resurrected Jesus to return from heaven. That's what they were waiting for. Now to you and me, we might think waiting is boring and tedious and you kind of got airport waiting room in your mind. But Christian waiting is different because it's highly active. We wait for the arrival of the Lord. And the word Paul uses there is the word for royalty. When royalty or a king or an emperor is about to arrive in glory to judge and reward. In 1970, Queen Elizabeth II visited Orange. The whole town spent six months preparing for that visit. When you receive notice that you're going to get a rental inspection, or if you're a teenager, a bedroom inspection, it's action stations. That's the idea of waiting here. If you are a Christian who's waiting for Jesus, it's not an airport waiting room. You are doing everything possible to be ready. For the king's arrival. Now we'll talk about that more next week. But waiting for the Thessalonians had become harder. It wasn't so much the time that it was taking, because in the next verse we read, Paul says, No one knows the time when Jesus will come back. The problem in Thessalonica was that some of their brothers and sisters had died. And that raised serious questions. Will a Christian who dies be at a disadvantage? Will they miss out on eternal life? And what had happened is the Thessalonians waiting had become wobbly. It had become uncertain. And so in our passage today, as Charles read, Paul answers this question with love and care. He does not want them to be uninformed about the Christian hope. Because if you're uninformed about hope, it leads to uncertainty and difficulty in waiting. See the link? If you're not sure what you're waiting for, how you wait becomes wobbly. And so Paul explains the Christian hope in three points. So point number one, Christian hope is secured by what Jesus has done in the past. Now when you heard we were talking about hope this morning... That word's been devalued in our world, hasn't it? For example, I hope every year the Parramatta Eels will win the premiership. It's a vague wish, right? Christian hope is not a vague wish. Christian hope is certain and dependable. You can base your entire bank balance you have this morning on it. Actually, you can base your eternity on it. Why? Why? Because Christian hope is secured and defined by the past, not the future. We see it there in verse 14. It's in your Bibles. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, verse 14, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the past, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul takes us back to the first Easter. And he says, if you believe the gospel, now what's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and that he shouldered your guilt so that God might justly forgive you. And then three days later, he rose from the dead as proof that that sacrifice was acceptable and he had defeated your sin and he defeated your death and he defeated the devil. If you believe that, if you've bonded yourself to Jesus at the cross, you know your future. Because exactly the same way God rose Jesus from the dead on the third day is exactly the same as what he will do for you when he returns. That's why Paul calls Christian death sleep. Because it is only Christ who dies. He is the only one who endures the full horror of death and the judgment in our place. If you're a Christian, death is completely without terror. It's just sleep. A temporary space before resurrection to new life. Just like Jesus. So let's answer the Thessalonians question. Will those who die miss out? Absolutely not because anyone united with Jesus by faith in this life will be united with Jesus in the next. The Christian hope is never based on feelings or the amount of faith you have. It is defined and secured by what Jesus did on the cross for us. The dead in Christ will be raised just like Jesus. And so point two, Christian hope is focused on Jesus' return. Now, what happens when culture pushes God to the sidelines? That's what our culture does. God is irrelevant. Well, lots of things happen, don't they? One of the the impacts is that hope shrinks. When there is nothing in life except a self-sufficient system, then all hope must come from within the system. Behind the memory sharing and positive thinking in a godless funeral is nothing but grief. In contrast, the Christian hope is not vague. There are no harps and no surfing clouds. It focuses on Jesus' return. So what is going to happen when Jesus returns? Four things. Have a look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here are the four things. Number one, the Lord himself will come. The king will come. God's son will come from heaven to earth. God will not send an intermediary, an assistant. He will come himself. Number two, Jesus' return will be visible, audible and historical. He did not arrive in 2019 secretly. He didn't arrive in 2015 secretly. He won't arrive in 2023 secretly. His arrival will be absolutely inevitable and unmissable. And on the day he arrives in history, the Lord of law will arrive and every eye will see him. His shout will be like a charioteer screaming to his horses, authoritative and urgent. And Jesus will say one word, enough. Enough shame. Enough injustice. Enough abuse. Enough war. Enough sickness, enough crying, enough death. He will make all things right. Jesus' return is inevitable and unmissable. Number three, Jesus will rise with him, those who are asleep first. Never think if you're alive, when Jesus returns, you get a better seat in heaven. You don't. The dead in Christ will hear Jesus' voice just like Lazarus did and they will respond immediately. They were raised to be with Jesus. Their waiting ended. Now everyone loves a reunion story. We all love a reunion story. Now your favourite reunion story might be Nemo and Marlon or Kevin McAllister and his family. It's Christmas season. Or Andy and Red or Bo Peep and Woody. Reunions are good, aren't they? The Christian hope is the most epic reunion ever. Because point four, Jesus will rise with those who are alive. See verse 17? Then we who are still alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. It's a great picture, isn't it? When Jesus returns, there's going to be two reunions. God's people with each other. Those who are alive with Christians who have died and they will be reunited forever. And the second reunion is God's people will be with Jesus physically forever. The reunion, it's going to happen in the air. The air was the abode of Satan, of the devil. But it is now the meeting place of God and his people. Yes, Satan could stop Paul going to visit Thessalonica, but Satan has absolutely no power of Jesus' return and the great reunion. And then Jesus and his people will move to the new creation to dwell forever. Stunning picture, isn't it? Let's do a couple of sides. Tim loves the sides. Let's do them. I'm going to do two. Number one what about the non believer? What happens to those who don't trust Jesus? Do they get raised to eternal life too, i.e. universalism? Everyone just goes to the same place. Or do they just become worm food, like the annihilation? Just just finish? Well, this passage actually doesn't deal with this. So we shouldn't look for the answer in this passage, because that's not the Thessalonian question. However, Jesus answers it in John chapter 5. And it's on your screen. Do not be amazed at this, Jesus said, because a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. I hope you know this, but you've got two appointments that you have to keep, but you can't book into your diaries. They are your day of death and your day of judgment. Everyone will be raised by Jesus at their death. And the Christian will go to be with Jesus in eternal life. Why? Because their judgment is in their past at the cross. For the non-believer, their judgment is in their future at judgment day. Well, aside, aside two, what happens when you die? Do you just fall asleep? Are you in paradise with the thief on the cross? Or are you dead? Sheol. Now, this is a question Christians have wrestled with for 2,000 years. It's a hard question, isn't it? And it's a question you've got to wrestle with because it impacts your hope. It impacts your assurance in the face of death. Let me tell you, I think the key is this. The key is to hold this truth very firmly. If you are in Christ now, you will always be with Christ. More simply, if you are by faith united to Jesus, i.e. he's your saviour, then you will always be with Jesus when you die. There is no purgatory. Wherever Jesus is, when you die, you are with him. And so in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing, not even death. And so it is appropriate to say when a Christian dies, they are with Jesus. Okay, but what does that look like? Well, this little book on the screen by David Jackman has been really helpful to me as I've been praying about this over the last few weeks. And uh, here's kind of where I land. Ready? At the moment of our death, the spirit of the Christian leaves the body and goes to be with Christ instantly. And that's when Paul says in Philippians one twenty three, it's better by far to go and be with the Lord. Paul is very clear that when you die, your spirit goes to be with Jesus. So what do we do with the body? We bury and cremate it, which is like a house from which the tenant has been removed. So we bury or cremate the body. And the spirits of all God's people are kept in heaven with the resurrected Jesus, who is ruling, awaiting the great resurrection day. We see pictures of that in Revelation chapter 6 verse 10 where the saints are going, how long, how long, Lord? Then on the day that Jesus returns, the spirit of the Christian is united with their new glorious resurrection body. That body is patterned on Christ's glorious body, which means when you're raised on that final day, it's physical and different. It'll have individual identity. 1 Corinthians 15 is a good place to read. And then all Christians with their resurrected body will live in the new creation and new earth forever. Revelation chapter 21. I think that's a stunning picture. That is your certain hope if you trust Jesus. So point three, Christian hope shapes life now. Uh, I've lost two Christian friends my own age in the last three weeks. One was taken instantly in an accident and the other lost a short built battle with illness. Um, Confronting death is never an intellectual exercise, especially when you're trying to write a sermon. Death hurts. Uh, Death shakes our foundations and death questions how strong we really are. But as I've read the Bible over the last month, I've been reminded again and again of how my hope impacts everything. Because Christian hope shapes how we grieve. In the face of death, Christians grieve deeply. There is no place to suppress your emotion. We grieve. Yet we do not grieve like the rest of the world when they don't have the resurrected Jesus. The vague platitudes, rest in peace, looking down, better place, they don't help us as the body goes through the curtain or the body gets lowered into the ground. There's an interesting letter from the second century. It's on the screen and it's from a non-Christian to a non-Christian and they say this, I sorrowed and wept over your dead departed one, but really there is nothing one can do in the face of such things. In contrast, the Christian grieves with a certain hope that their sleeping brother or sister will awaken to resurrected life. A Christian in the second century wrote this, and if any righteous one among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they escort the body as if it was setting out from one place to another. Christian hope shapes how we grieve. Christian hope strengthens us now. At the beginning I said waiting is hard and it is especially hard when life is hard. But the Christian hope, it's so much more than a ticket to heaven because we have the words of eternal life. And as our friends grieve and as our friends struggle, we can speak the words of eternal life to them to lift them up. And so as members of church at nine go through despair, when everything is lost, when life may be not worth living, it's the words of eternal life that can give them strength. When we are full of anxiety and life is so hard just to breathe, it's the words of the Christian hope which can help us sleep and trust God. And when bad news strikes, the words of eternal life can help us keep going. Well, my friend Leah did die a couple of weeks ago. And before she died, her husband said to her, honey, do you want to talk to a minister about your hope? Are you unsettled? Are you not sure where you're going? This is what she said. She turned to him and said, honey, I know where I'm going. Jesus has died for my sins. I am forgiven and I'm going to be with Jesus. And her words strengthened him. And Christian hope shapes how we wait. Like the Thessalonians, we await the arrival of royalty, the Lord of lords. The danger for modern Christians is not that we think he'll come tonight. The danger for modern Christians is we forget he's coming back at all. And then we focus on short-term hopes, like our neighbours this morning. So if you were to say, what is your hope in life? It could be, I want a comfortable life. I want to go back cruising. I want my career to go up a step. I want my children to succeed. They are the hopes of the people living next to you without the hope of the Jesus return. But remember that truth we started with? What, your hope, what you wait for shapes how you live. So if we lose the hope of Jesus' return, we will forget the day of judgment's coming. If we forget that Jesus' return is coming, we will move into the business of keeping people happy. Once we lose the hope of Jesus' return, OEC will become invisible. We will go low profile and we will not want to stand out in a world that hates God and Christians. And if we lose the hope of Jesus' return, we will stop trying to please God and we will please ourselves. Because what you wait for shapes how you live. I want you never to think the Christian hope stalls life. We're not moving out to Ian and Meg's house to sit in a circle and just wait for Jesus. That's not our, what we're going to do. The Christian hope is going to shape our life. It is the glorious shadow over every aspect of our life. It is Jesus' guaranteed return that will stimulate perseverance as the world turns against us. It is Jesus' return that will motivate holiness sexually, internally, verbally, thoughts, actions, priorities. It is the return of Jesus that will shape our career choices and how we use our time. Our hope is certain and glorious. So strengthen one another with these words.